Hey friends, Mike Myers here with the Songwriting for Guitar podcast, episode number 40, Stefan Edgerton. So since this is the 40th episode, I want to do something cool. Give something away, and I'm going to give away one free 40-minute session with me over Zoom. So if you are a songwriter that's trying to get their music into film and television, maybe you just started guitar and you're trying to understand song structure, what you need to be working on, well, guess what? Maybe that's what we use that session for. And here's all you have to do to enter. Just go to Apple Podcasts, look for the Songwriting for Guitar Podcasts, Leave us an amazing review, five stars, screenshot it, and send it to me at mike at songwritingforguitar.com, and you will be entered. We're announcing the winner July 23rd. Now, I'm insanely pumped to have Stefan on the show today. Growing up in uh, a punk rock music scene, you just say the word descendants, and everyone's like, they're the shit. They have influenced so many bands. You know, Travis Barker from Blinkway 2 always says, what's my favorite band? Descendants. And there's a reason. So many bands that I was listening to would drop the name Descendants in lyrics that I was like, okay, I have to go listen to the Descendants. So this little punk went to Circuit City because that's where punks go. Um, and I picked up Everything Sucks and all. And I was like, holy, this is amazing. That There was, especially during that time, I was starting out on guitar and I was always listening to guitar parts, but there was something different about his playing. It was melodic. It wasn't fighting with the bass and it wasn't doing the exact same thing with the bass, but it just worked. It was flowing with the song. And we're going to get into how did he develop that style of playing over time? What influenced him? There are going to be some surprises that you wouldn't expect. So here we go. We're just going to jump into it. Drum roll, please. Episode number 40, Stefan Edgerton. For me, I'm a huge fan because of your work. Uh, the Descendants played a huge role in when I was starting to learn guitar and... I was always fascinated by your playing too. It was very melodic, your lines, how you arrange your guitars, but I'd love to get into your backstory of how you started in music and more importantly, like what were some records growing up, especially early on that kind of like piqued your interest? Because it's one thing to listen, but then suddenly you're like, hmm, this is interesting. I want to know more. I'll forewarn you that I tend to be long-winded in storytelling. So, um, you know, <laughs> if we're in a hurry, then you, you pick the wrong guy. But uh, so music was a huge, you know, was huge at my house. My parents both played a little bit of guitar, both of, both of them, and they were both music fanatics. And I was fanatical about it pretty much instantly. The first record that, that uh, really caught my attention and that I played over and over and over again was the soundtrack to Hair when I was really young, when I was really like, I don't know, a toddler. That was something I loved. But the thing that really that really crystallized my interest in music was the Beatles. And I'm still a complete Beatles fanatic. So the Beatles were the reason that I wanted to ever start playing music. I would say if there was any one thing, it would have been the Beatles. And so I picked up I picked up the guitar. My mom taught me my first chords. Um, I started playing when I was nine. 
And I mean, that sounds like, you know, awesome, but I was, I was flippant about it. I was just into it. I learned chords. I played songs, but then I might be into skateboarding or whatever. You know, I, I was, I was a, a casual, but reasonably consistent player. I wasn't like, okay, I'm going to be a, you know, guitar. I wasn't like that at all. I just wanted to learn to play songs and play guitar and sing. So I, when I was 11, I started playing uh, and, and doing songs in at a shopping mall near my house like kind of a like a fairly kind of a fancy shopping mall called trolley square i grew up in salt lake city and you could get a permit to busk in there so i used to busk at when i was starting when i was 11 i did this for a few years um and made you know made pocket money and uh got the you know the attention i think i craved for it or whatever it was and so, you know, but that was all based in just learning songs and how to sing and play at the same time. I learned John Prine songs. I learned, sim you know, fairly simple songs, Doc Watson songs. I didn't really learn many Beatles songs, but I learned uh, most of the first songs I learned were from the American Graffiti soundtrack. Yeah. <laughs> so Chuck Berry, you know, a, a basic yeah, yeah. rock and roll. That was what my mom figured out that she could teach me. She could teach me three chord, simple-ish songs of of you know maybe kind of country-ish music like john prine or um or rock and roll music like chuck berry these were you know and she taught me how to listen to a song and like kind of scan around on the guitar looking for a note she's so she got my ear started that's great. So it's like she was gearing you for like active listening of like, okay, so this is once you focus on the note, try to find that root. And then if you can find that root, that gives you the hints of like, here are the possible chords they're going to be. That Absolutely. is so insanely helpful. Yeah, it was. It was, it was huge. She really played a massive part of that. And then, uh, you know, more with my mom later, she ended up joining a band with some friends. She was a singer and uh, she, she's a, she has a, she has a very good voice. Um, so she had this little fun band that just would play. They just played a couple of parties and that kind of thing. Um, but I used to go to their practices and the guitar player in that band was excellent. He was a, he was a music student. He was studying guitar. And one song that they played that she didn't sing was the song Scatterbrain by Jeff Beck, which is right. I mean, it's a, it, you know, it's a, it's a badass piece of guitar work, right? From the record Blow by Blow. So I think that song and, the, and seeing him play that song drew my interest more into the guitar specifically. Mm. And, and eventually that guy, Frank was his name. Frank, Frank was my teacher. Now I was, I was a really lousy student. So I, you know, I can't say that I followed through very well, but I mean, I would practice what he taught me, which was, you know, he taught me my first scales, just major scale, pentatonic scale. He taught me those things. And he helped further the little bit of ear understanding that I had where I could figure out kind of what scale somebody might be playing so I could play along with stuff. Not Nothing super advanced, but just that I could go, oh, okay, this, this scale, I can play this over Hendrix right here. <laughs> I can play this little part, you know. But I still wanted to sing and learn how to write songs. But, you know, songwriting didn't come easily to me. Still, uh, you know, now I can do it. Only in the last few years am I making any sort of vague headway that direction. But when I discovered punk rock, which I was, of course, able to, you know, figure out, the, figure out songs pretty easily and kind of figure out what was happening. The first time I tried to sing 
punk rock music, something with a little bit more of an aggressive kind of an approach to it, perhaps. I was absolutely horrible. My voice is low, clean, clear, not an iota of grit. Yeah. And it's just terrible. So I still like singing and I do a lot of it now. But um, with punk rock, my focus shifted to, to guitar pretty much entirely. So the stuff that I was listening to right before I got into, into punk rock was stuff that this teacher, Frank, had shown me. Mahavishnu Orchestra expanded my love for Jeff Beck, which was already, you know, great, but was a lot greater. He's still top tier for me. Those two, McLaughlin and, and Beck, those were, those were the, the guys that really did something for me. Larry Coriel. So he, he got me listening to fusion music. And even, you know, prog, yes, and that, you know, that kind of stuff. And there were jazz records around my house, so I, I was familiar. I can't I'm claim no expertise or great understanding other than I, I was strongly attracted to things like Thelonious Monk, um, Miles Davis, Dave Blubeck, obviously. But so, so these were the, you know, this was the stuff that was boiling around in my head around the time that I discovered punk rock music. So there was Beatles, you know, there, there was deeply melodic music, I guess, you know, I would yes. consider that very melodic music. There was prog rock and then punk rock. I missed metal entirely. I didn't, I didn't start listening to metal until way after I got into punk rock and kind of as a result of punk rock in a funny way, because, you know, I had friends who, who either in the punk rock world or, or kind of close by it that, mm -hmm we would swap records and stuff, you know, like Chris, you know, he, he'd hand me a pile of metal. I'd hand him a pile of punk and we'd, you know, check out each other's records. So I was late covered metal. I didn't get into Van Halen or anything like that way later. Um, and so, you know, that's the basic, you know, th then, you know, that's the kind of trajectory. Well then yeah. everything went to shit all at once. And I, I abandoned everything and quit, playing electric guitar entirely i discovered this record a live record by two classical guitarists julian bream and john williams yeah. and they played a version i think i think it's asturias is the name of the piece but it's a, it's a, it's like a scatterbrain only for classical guitar i mean it's just brutal right it's a motherfucker and i was just i was like i gotta learn how to do this i sold all my electric guitar shit I got a classical guitar okay. and went headlong into, into classical guitar. I moved to Washington, D.C. I met a, I, I found a teacher there that was really good, and I was trying to gear myself up to go into a music conservatory and learn classical guitar and that kind of stuff. Well, well then... Shit, that is like, I didn't expect it. You sold everything, and it was like... I sold... All, the funny thing is, the only thing that I didn't sell was... A Sound City 50 watt head, which I have to this day. I left it in my in my uh, really basement. I still have that head to this day. It's I, I got it when I was 17, I think, and I still have it. And I still have the classical guitar I bought, which was just a cheap Yamaha, but painted black. It's kind of a badass guitar. But I so I I studied classical guitar as hard as I could. I knew nothing about reading music. I was just starting from the beginning and just going okay and learning the you know just basic stuff. And during the time that I lived in Washington, D.C., which was just, just shy of a year and a half, I, knew, I bought one rock record, and that was the second Descendants record, um, I Don't Want to Grow Up. I would, had already been a huge fan when I was into punk rock. I, was, I had 
burned through one copy of Milo Goes to College and bought a second one. I was absolutely fanatical about Descendants. I loved them. And so I was like, whoa, Descendants put out a new record. And I bought it. And just weird way the world works, I guess. Within, I don't know, nine months I was in the band. Ten months I was in the band. That's just how it played out. Like I was doing classical guitar. Yeah. And, and then my oldest friend, Carl Alvarez, we've known each other since junior high. He, you know, I could go into that story, but that's a whole nother story. That, that's, you know, he got in the band and they needed a guitar player. I called to congratulate him, you know, and he says, we need a guitar player. And so I said, okay, I'm going to come out and jam with these guys. Now I haven't played electric guitar, you know, in a, more than a year. So I played with him for three days, Bill, just really just Bill, Carl and I, and Carl and I had already a long-standing musical, you know, we played together in bands. And so we already knew each other. We had a musical language, let's say. Bill recognized that. So it was, I think, a pretty obvious choice to, to go ahead and have, have me join. So I went to my classical guitar teacher. Remember, I've been like, I'm, I've been like focused on going to Peabody. <laughs> you know, I want to go to the conservatory. And my teacher says, you're already good at this. This is an opportunity. If you if you go to Peabody, if you do that, or wherever we'll let you in. I'm not saying Peabody was going to take me, but you know that's what that was my goal in my head. Mm -hmm. Say Peabody takes you, and you learn all of this stuff. At the end of the day, all you can do is teach. There's no there's no career in this. There's nothing. There's nowhere to go. You'll just be doing what I'm doing. This is at least you know this is something. It's there and it's already going and working. Fuck it, do it. So I said, okay, fine, and I. <laughs> And I packed up and I moved to Los Angeles. And so I was, I was just, um, I had just turned 23 then. Yeah. And, uh, now I'm 56. And <laughs> here we are <laughs> doing the same stuff. So sorry that was so long winded, but there you no, go. No, that my was, entire history. And, and, and that was amazing. Especially the story of Carl just being like, hey, I got this gay and you should come out because I talked a while ago to um, Jim West, who plays guitar for Weird Al. Uh -huh. Him and the bassist, bassist went out to LA, started playing with Weird Al, called him and said, hey, I'm playing with these guys. We need a guitarist. Maybe you should cut. So it's something about bassists that eventually you lock in with. Yeah, right, right, totally. Yeah, Carl was like, you know, he was, uh, he didn't play when I met. He actually started really late for, you, you would be, he, he started, I don't think he was, I mean, I don't think he started playing formally. What happened is that yeah. I had this band and, and you know, when you're a kid, you make up bands with people that maybe they don't even play yet. You don't know. Yeah. But one guy, he was a real drummer, George. Um, we had this little band, The Big Fish. Carl was going to play the bass, and but he didn't know how yet. But we tracked him down a bass and the bass was sitting around his house. Well, that never came to fruition. And there was a woman playing keyboards in the band. She held down the bass all of the doors. So yeah, that's yeah. how that band, it was like kind of surfy stuff. It was probably strongly B-52s influenced. And so Carl had this bass line around. And Carl is a very smart person, right? He's an extremely intelligent person. And there was musicality in his family, though not, not tons of it. His sister played music. Um, but he f he started figuring out how to plunk out songs off of records and mm -hmm. that happened by then this band was already broken up well anyway we you know we started doing that stuff regularly i started showing him what little bit i could i couldn't you know i couldn't say that i taught him much but a bunch of the stuff that we were listening to 
we could tell that the bass and the guitar weren't always doing the same thing. They weren't always just doing like a box shape, like the Ramones or whatever, you know what I mean? That there was more, you know, so, so in the interest of making something cool, we always tried to figure out a way to not play the same thing together, unless it was like meant to be that way. If we were playing yeah. some part, if it's like, you know, you're playing Iron Man, yeah, part of it, you're going to play together. But, you know, then you spread out, right, from, from each other and you find different things. And so I think we strategized partly accidentally about trying to make, uh, trying to make the music broader by each playing different things from each other. And that has held true and was probably the thing that Bill recognized. Like, wow, fuck, these guys already have like kind of a little weird thing that they do. And I'm sure he went, yeah, that's kind of that, you know, that's at least interesting. And really, if yeah. you think about early descendants, not far from early descendants, because while Frank is considered more of a, you know, bar chord, actually it's less bar chords, it's a lot of open chords in Frank's case, but Frank's playing would have been more rhythmic and Tony would be playing lines all over the place. That's yeah. what that was the early descendants, what it sounds like. And so in a way, Carl and I kind of made a lot of sense because we were already very used to playing, um, you know, working out, you know, stuff together. And so, yeah, that was a, that was a funny thing. I mean, that, you know, I, I couldn't believe a, that my, you know, oldest best friend had, had joined, you know, a band that we were both absolutely fanatical about. And within, you know, a couple of weeks I was in it too. <laughs> it just, I mean, but it seems like any route that you did, you totally owned. You didn't go like partially in, you know, like tone. It's like when you were like, I'm going to do classical guitar. Fuck. I'm like, all <laughs> in. when I'm in, the set, I'm all in. But like that and that backstory of active listening and kind of bring it in and learning songs, just you two recognizing like, okay, so we can't always do the same thing. We need to do things that fill out that sound because I feel when you join the Descendants, your guitar playing, especially regardless if it's a riff or it's a line, it feels full. And I don't know if that was conscious, unconscious, but it's like when it's I- It's classical guitar. It's classical <laughs> guitar. That's what did it. Yeah, Sam, Sam Gitlin. That was my teacher. Sam, Sam was like, he knew I didn't know how to read. He knew I could play guitar. He was like, wow, you're good. And he could see that I could advance as a guitarist where, you know, some students are just going to kind of plod along very slowly or their trajectory is, is a long, slow arc. I could learn things and, and get them very quickly and understand what he was talking about. And there was so much emphasis in classical guitar on trying to you know, get clean, even notes playing to a metronome. He would make me play to a metronome and slow down because I would always play everything too fast because I'm a punker, you know. And, and so, you know, I had to learn how to play clean, even. And, you know, the, he made me pay attention to the sustain of notes, you know, start plucking a note and having it end, you know, on count rather than just randomly. And that that's what made that cleaner thing that that I think, you know, it, it was sort of just it's part of having to do the classical guitar thing. If you're trying to make all of those clean, even notes and and just when I picked electric guitar back up, that's kind of just how I played by that time. So there was a lot more. The other thing is that I don't, you know, to, to dive into how I might play a song that was presented to me by one of, you know, by Carl or Bill, you know, Milo, whoever was in the band at that time, is that I would tend to strip down the chords. It wasn't just like an automatic, yeah, I'm going to play six strings or I'm only going to play two or whatever, but I would, they were very thought out 
like this many, this many strings play, you know, and I, you you get good at deadening what you don't need either, you know, somewhere with some other parts of your hands, you start making sure you're not hitting the stuff that isn't part of the chord you're trying to play or whatever. I, I tried to explain this once to a student. I was like, it's like ditch the idea of chord properness. Like when you learn guitar at first, you're very conscious of like, this is how many strings should ring through. Okay, that's good. It's okay to not have them ring through sometimes. Like Absolutely. Other, because like maybe- and It's a dynamic tool. It's a dynamic tool. It's like not about complicated chords. It's like, how can you use the same kind of like simple chords, but make them interesting and not let all the strings ring through during a verse. But when you hit to the chorus, they punch. And then suddenly it's like, oh, it feels fuller. Yeah, you held back just like a tiny bit. Absolutely. And the the other thing, you know, that's part of that thinking yeah. is, you know, an extension of what I was saying about Carl and I trying to learn how to kind of work around each other is that ultimately rather than a lot of cloudiness of say like too many people ganged up on a given note in the total chord that you might be creating between the voice maybe there's a backing vocal it might be a harmony part you know between all of that that you're forming something and i make it sound like you know i'm thinking of this in some you know you know it's it's not a school thing it's it's a it's really a matter of practicality it's a matter of trying to figure out how to make it so you can hear everything. And a lot of times the fight is to try to make sure you can hear the bass because <laughs> because <laughs> the bass, it's easy to just, you know, people come in with their Marshall and they crank all the mids down, they blast the bass all the way up and then blah, you know, they make this big blur and the bass is just gone. Like, you know, yeah. Jason Newstead or whatever. So, so like that, you know, trying to figure out how to keep the stuff intelligible, how to get all of this detailed information across in in an intelligible way that's part of how we arrived at this thing even though like it, it's it, you know that 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 had as much to do with what we were what we try to do as anything else just try to get the intelligibility and the detail through without clouding it up with too much bullshit <laughs> and it seems like it's like you're very song conscious because it's like there's three layers there's like highs mids lows it's just like, does the song fill that? Does it feel like it's there? And if it's like you're too too high end, it's like, I don't know. It's like, you know, big head, small body, you're going to tip over. It's like you need uh, to yeah. make sure that it's full. So the idea that you're aware of that and thinking, okay, so what's the backing vocal doing? Well, it's here and seeing this note's here. Well, if I hit that, it's like then it's kind of like deadens each other out. It's almost phases each other out a little bit. Yeah, in a funny way. And there's you know, octave choice, octave choice. One, you know, one guy goes high, one guy goes low. We do that all, you know, we're, we're trying to figure out every way we can to make sure that all of the various details are reading through. And that was, that is not only for us a, a feature of maybe, maybe it's automatic for us now, but it's also a feature of how we produce records you know this is this is what bill and i this is probably how we got into it and what the the thing that we could never explain to engineers easily was how imperative that detail and and those differences were to us and eventually even if we fucking ruined the record completely sonically in the in the interest of trying to get there we would try to figure out a way to make sure that every instrument was represented in a way where you could hear it all the time and so that 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 starts at 
chord choices, bass note choices, bass run choices, whatever, and how that stuff sits with a melody, with a vocal melody. That's, you know, that's really it. It's, it's like the, the most crude bass level compositional thought process. I and it's interesting because like your teacher, you could go to music school, you can go to this, but at the end of the day, there's something to be said, like when you write a song and record it, these questions, there's not a book about like, you should go for low, uh, you should actually go up here for power chord E instead. Doing this was recording always something you were super interested in, or was this like over time, like it just like evolved even more where you just again dove in. It's like, I gotta fucking do this. <laughs> no, recording. Rec so, so my, my father had a, a, uh, passing interest in hi-fi stereo at, in the sixties. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, and granted, you know, that stuff was expensive then, like it's expensive now. But one thing that we did have at my house growing up is, um, as a result was a reel-to-reel -reel tape deck with a, just a shitty basic microphone. Mm. We had a Sony reel-to-reel -reel tape deck and I was fascinated by this thing. I have one out, I have one out in my shed, actually, it's funny. I found one not too long ago, the same model. And I have a collection of tape machines, of like old funny tube, tube tape machines and shit. I'm, I'm kind of fanatical about it. But, this thing had a, a, a crude microphone with it, just like a little eighth inch jack, you know, shitty condenser microphone. But I loved the f like being able to try to record something. And I've, so I basically had a reel to reel deck with me or somewhere in my proximity since I was, since I could remember, since I can, as long as I can remember, I've had a tape deck around me. And so recording was already fascinating. And then getting to join the band, that was the first time I was in anything other than just a very basic kind of a home studio. You know, a simple, very crude, like eight track studio would have been the most I'd ever seen before that. Four tracks, even. Everything I had ever been involved with, re with recording was very slipshod, let's say. But so, so joining the band, I got to finally go into a studio that had proper equipment, two inch, 24 track deck, real compressors, a Neumann microphone, like, you know, stuff that I didn't know really anything about, but I was absolutely, you know, I was like a parrot, you know, on, on the shoulder of these pirates or for the first couple of years I was in the band and I learned every single thing I could. And, and as soon as I could, well, what happened is our, is our, uh, the guy who engineered Descendants All mm -hmm. and the first few All Records, Richard Andrews was his name. Richard recognized my interest and sort of started taking me on once in a while as an assistant. And yeah. so I started learning, you know, what actually was going on. And I've just kind of pieced it together and done it ever since. And I will say that short of the short of getting up with the dudes and blasting, you know, blasting songs live, which of course that's going to be, you know, fun and awesome and everything great. My greatest musical joy is writing and recording stuff very quickly by myself. I really have a great time doing that. It's because you can get lost in that world, but it's always fascinating. Again, it's like the band led to another education, which was yes. just recording. And that's one of my favorite things too, to be in a studio and just, you know, I remember early on just kind of like being like, I'm not going to ask any questions. 
I do have a question. What did actually one question? One, one just question. one. <laughs> it is. It's fascinating because it's like I, thoughts that I never had of just like that's interesting. Mic placement. Like when I place it here, it's super big. But then suddenly this is like, and then you file this away almost. It's right. just like more knowledge when you're trying to access. Oh, I want this sound. I want it would be great for this this combination and this eleven seventy six compared paired with this. But that's exactly what I need. Yeah so much fun. so so now they're now i do the things together because i started playing drums basically right after i started playing guitar so you know six months later i learned my first drum beat and i i'm not a good enough drummer to um you know to join a band and be a drum a drummer i would have to work very hard to get up to that <laughs> speed with that but i do i do write very deliberate parts that i can play with good feeling in in you know bursts or whatever so when i record a song of my own i'll make four passes through the song and then i'll kind of go oh this verse is good now oh, here's a good verse this is a decent course you know and i'll just huck it together i mean i'm i'm hi i edited it all you know but it's uh i love playing the drums and i love playing the bass so for me now you know i i do all this stuff by myself and it's second nature because i've spent so many years recording other bands and you you know the other thing it's funny sam gitlin that the guy i was saying taught me you know was teaching me classical guitar before i joined the band shortly after i started taking lessons from him he said okay here's what i want you to do i think you should get a couple students and i was like what are you crazy <laughs> and he said no i'm telling you do, yeah. do this because there's you when you have to figure out how to explain something to somebody, that's when you, that's when it crystallizes for you. That's when you learn it and understand it best. And he was fucking absolutely right. I got a couple of students and I was like, how am I going to get this point across? And eventually you find a way to explain it. And that, that for me was, and, and I think for Bill was the essence of producing records, just trying to get people, trying to get the ideas that you have across showing them what what might not be working and why and so they go oh so you can give them aha moments if you can start giving people aha moments you can get a record done that's how i saw it you I, know i mean i'm not making hit records where bill he makes big huge records so you know take my take my view on this with a grain of salt but but it's it's true that that we made substantial progress on our own playing by having to explain things to people as producers and try to try to get points across and ideas across to people. It's huge, hugely helpful. When I started teaching, it was, and it was appreciation for all the shit that I was doing that I completely forgot I was doing because I was doing the thing for a while and I was so far and it was like, that's right, but you're right. The kid trying to convey an idea, trying to convey the concept in not a wordy term, but in something that's tangible, accessible, that, you know, whatever analogy you have to use and just understand. And then seeing the person go, uh-huh. And then the next lesson they go, uh-huh. And the next lesson they go, you mean this? And you're like, yes. And they're like, I get it. And it's, it's presenting it a couple different ways. But then with each student too, you kind of refine it. Like the way I taught, you know, 10 years ago was probably a, a kind of a clunky trying to find how to do it. But now the way to communicate something, I can see like, okay, so this is their background. This is their age. Here are the things they're dealing with. Here are the things they like. Can I find it in a way that connects with them? 
And then if I can reach them, then they're more receptive to me telling them stuff. And if they're more receptive to me telling them stuff, I can then give them that light bulb or right. several light bulbs. And you can, you know, and, and, and in it, you know, coming from the production angle of it or producing records in the way that, that we did, you know, you could make a band substantially better. You know, you could really see immense progress in people. Um, and, you know, that was really, that was really gratifying. I can't, I can't claim I, I'm a terrible guitar teacher. I'm not, I just don't do it very well. But like explaining things in a more holistic way about the songs and about how these things fit together, the other stuff we've kind of already been talking about, that was really useful and helpful. And, and I, I, did, I do enjoy doing that. That's awesome. I think it's a more tangible thing. When people think guitar sometimes and less, they think of just like, and da, 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 and and this here's your scales and here's your metronome and then here's the book okay bye but to like say like let's talk about this song let's talk about like the nuances and kind of the gold that's within it and here's why they're doing it and then from your perspective too well here's probably why the bass and the guitar are doing this because if you listen to this and this it kind of would clash but they chose not to do it that then causes the person then to go home and how they listen to songs now it's different. They, yeah. can't, they can't unsee it once they saw. They can't unsee, and it's just like, right. oh shit, he's right. And My poor family. They're all just like, God, you ruined music for me. Because you know, all all three. My wife and both of my kids are both are all all three of them are strong music. You, you know, they they get it. My wife is like, I'm not playing an instrument. Are you nuts? You know, but she can hum every like 80s guitar solo ballad perfectly for you like like she can you know whatever like poison yeah. thing she you know everything and she she has an, an impeccable musical ear but her me explaining and talking too much me saying all this stuff all the time my kids are just like fuck and and her just like <laughs> no, i can't listen to i can hear every single little weird stupid detail and i can't just sit here and listen to the music anymore because it's so exciting because it's just like oh you're gonna miss this part listen to what happens here it's like when i watch doctor who and it's an old episode and i'm just like okay so that guy right there he was in another episode and here's what it was it's like <laughs> i get excited about that and i geek out about that or since i do a lot of licensing i always love listening to commercials and being like do you see the trend right now you see right now this is totally supposed to be like kings of leon it's not kings of leon they're trying to rip off of kings of leon but it feels like it because of da 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 it's almost like once you start to understand or you start to look at songs as not only just like something that's a form of expression and communication because that's the important thing but seeing the breakdowns of why they chose to do that there were conscious decisions made and the just almost the psychology of well why was that the, cho the choice that they made their pattern or was it accidental i mean the funny thing is like you know bill and i've talked about this a lot over the years that as kids you know listening to some of the punk rock records we love the amount of it that you think is deliberate that absolutely is not deliberate at all and, and and you know but but if you're an analytical person and i think he and i share that we both are like wait, why is it this way? Not just accepting completely that it is this way, but like, why is it this way? And you start to go, that's what is making this sound the way it does. That's why it hits you the way it does. And, you know, how come, God, how come the bass is so much better on this? You know why? Because it's not 
fucking buried under something else. They figured out some way to, make, you know what I mean? That those are the things that you start to catch on to, and yeah. they and they they have great meaning really in the music. And and you know the other funny thing that starts to happen to you that I'm sure you deal with all the time too and get is if you're melody focused, which I clear I certainly am. If one is melody focused and you start hearing melodies in other places like god not too long ago my daughter and i were driving somewhere and i'm like oh listen that's blah 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 and she and she looked at me and she's just like ah oh, it happened again <laughs> like it's ruined the song for because now she can't unhear the fact that this was like an elton john melody or she was listening to k-pop and it actually you know the melodies ripped off from abba or whatever you know? yeah <laughs> I, I think it was the other day I was listening to, I was breaking down uh, an Olivia Rodrigo song for someone, Good For You. And there was this part where there's this fill and this really grungy guitar. And I was like, wait a minute, where have I heard this? And she was like, and she was like, what do you mean? I was like, I've heard this before. And I was like, oh, that's right. That's like the start of Breed by Nirvana. And she was like, no, it's not. And then we compared and she was like, that kind of sounds like this, just for that little second. But it's yeah, yeah. that there are moments where those appear. And I don't know. I just like you can't help it. There's only twelve notes. I mean, there's only some. You know, it's going to happen sometimes, right? And that's okay. I think that's, that's great. cool to just see it where it appears because it's everything comes full circle at some point, and things are going to reappear because depending who writes it, how they grew up, what they listened to at that exact moment, how they viewed things is going to affect what they listen to and what they're going to write. So it's like. Absolutely. And that's what's kind of cool because you're never going to get the same exact thing. It could be close. We could pair them up, but one's always going to be, it's like a fingerprint. You, you know, there's just, it's just distinctly different. We, it looks like we've got the same thing, but if we look on examination, it's, there's little patterns that are slightly different. Well, and of late, you know, I've, I've been thinking about actually Carl, Carl recently, I don't remember what the name of the book was, but he read a book on this very subject, but the way that, music that you discover in the developmental stage of your life whenever yeah. you know whenever that connection to music might happen for you and how it how it locks into you and affects you over you know decades of time and why it is that the music of our youth is so deeply entrenched for us now i mean there's a lot of it that will go oh god these guys uh, man, I, bad call, like, or this didn't hold up well. Yeah, that's going to happen from time to time. But the stuff that really sticks with you, why was it? Why does it stick with you? Why don't you just mm -hmm. shed it and move on to the next thing? You know, there's, there's something about the developmental moments and what music does to that. And, and it's the reason that, you know, like old dudes like me can cruise up and still play and people will play these songs that have been around now for 40 years and people will still give a shit about them. And I'm the same way. I saw Paul McCartney burst into tears. You know, I think that the fact that it, that it, that music can, can penetrate that deeply and in the ways that it does and that it can be a lifelong connection that you never, you know, that you never really get rid of, never jettison entirely. Um, that the fact that somebody taking a melody mm -hmm. or, you know, so, or I, I shouldn't say taking it in a deliberate sense, somebody reshaping the melody or something else that they heard and a whole young group of people hearing it, latching onto it. It's like, it's like how melodies transition through time or something. I mean, that sounds like I'm being a total hippie, but you, no, you know what? It totally, I get what you're saying because I always say that, you know, 
I've noticed sometimes when I'm trying to dissect, you know, students and clients strumming patterns, whatever decade they grew up in, that's the strumming pattern they've latched onto as their default. And I can identify like, I remember when I recognized this, I had somebody come in once and he was playing and he was like, I want to play you some songs. And he played and I was like, do you like the Goo Goo Dolls? And kind of like that early, you know, like early 2000. And he was like, it's my favorite band, man. And it, was, <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was just clear. And I think it's not that people are stealing, taking. It's right. like, if I were to do another Doctor Who analogy, it's like, it's a regeneration. It's just like, right. it, it happens right. again. Yeah. And I mean, sometimes it's stealing, but you know, I mean, people do that. There's no question. There's that too. Uh, but a lot of times, I mean, I don't think you even you know you don't even know i mean you're just you're playing something you love in the moment there it is and you know you it gels into some song for you and then a bunch of people grab onto it it's it, i think that part of it is uh, that's something in over the last few years that i just think about chew on more than i guess I would it's interesting and uh i couldn't agree with you more and this was awesome like this whole conversation i just you know i just geeked out about because like there are things that you're saying i'm like I totally agree with I totally agree with hold back hold back but it's it's just so refreshing to hear that from someone that I've listened to when I picked up the very first CD all in a circuit city because my parents oh. went to Home Depot that's an old phrase right there circuit city, city yeah. everything sucks and all that's what they had and I remember listening to it and just being like this is really good because all the bands I was listening to would reference Descendants Descendants I would see that name pop up and I'm like okay all it and it was like this is really good. And I remember trying to learn clean sheets, the solo, and just like, okay, okay. And now from your background, now it's easier I, than it sounds, believe me. I was just like, now it makes sense because to hear about your journey and then listen to what you've shaped and how you've grown as a guitarist, as a songwriter, as a producer, it just like it's cool to hear your story. And I would love to have you back sometime and let's delve more and just guitar things. Yeah. Sure thing. I'm I'm down for sure. Yes. Yeah, sorry. We got we got into yeah, we got into, you know, the holistic idea of music. No, no, no. I'm all for it. I'll yeah. I'll finish with one with one guitar related thing about some of those solos. I learned how to improvise reasonably well using blues scales, yeah. you know, pentatonic scale, whatever. But I you know, none of the music I was listening to really did the same thing in a major scale. So when I was confronted with songs like Clean Sheets, that was a great one. The only thing I knew how to do was to write a melody. So really, all of that stuff is just written melodies. They're just kind of like alternate vocal melodies. And so that's why you can sing along with it. That's why everyone goes, you know, it's because it's, it's just a melody. You know, it's it's simply a a, a major scale melody because the song is at a major scale, and I think the the idea of writing solos in that way is yeah. Jeff Beck. That's Beck talking completely. Because Beck, he's the most to me the most lyrical, if you will, or singing of of guitarists. That's that's what I think I loved so much about you know his solo. Yeah, he could play, you know, he can play flashy, but I never found any interest in, I mean, I can appreciate, you know, an Ingbe Malmsteen or whatever. I go, fuck yeah, dude, that guy is killing it. You know, it's badass and, it, and it's an amazing technique and uh, there's no way I could ever play anything even remotely like that. So for me, it's like, wow, that is fucking an impressive thing that they've figured out. But the stuff that I connect to 
is usually played slower and I can reference it as a melody and, th and that is Beck. And occasionally it's McLaughlin too, but it's, it's very Beck. <laughs> so funny. I, so it, like, that's a little bit more like, you know, guitar nerd. No, no, no. It's, I love talking <laughs> about both of it. Like reasoning. I like talking about, you know, all the, the behind the, the philosophy and also to like the cycle psychology behind why would somebody play this why would somebody do this how do you manifest how do you create that and yeah i love you know i still love the, the what was it the fender video that i had of like ingve would being like this is arpeggios from hell and it's just like just like straight and i'm just like oh that's cool but there's some reason why i can sing back george harrison solos yeah and i'm like <laughs> it just stayed with me because it was like melodic and it was something obtainable. I can appreciate the flashiness of a solo very quickly, but there's something I can take away and hold on to when it comes to melody. And sometimes that melody can be super simple, but when it's constructed in a song, I'm attached to it. And I can just, that feeling the song gives me, I think that melody just kind of extrapolates and just fills my well when I want to write stuff because I'm like, that's what I want to do. Yeah, absolutely. That's 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 exactly right. And there's so many, there's so many, you know, great guitar players in the jazz world that do play that way. You know, Wes Montgomery's like that, mm -hmm. right? Or or Joe Pass is like that. I mean, you, you can just you can you can identify it, and it and it you know it's beyond the scope of my playing. There's no question. But it's but it's it's like. I can imagine that and I can, I can hum to it. It, it, it triggers the part of me that is, is uh, that loves melody and harmony. And so I guess, you know, on the whole, that dynamic has always excited me more than flashy guitar playing. And I, I put no time into learning, you know, I still can't, I can't tap. I can't do anything remotely like that. Not even close. Bill could just bury me alive on tapping and he just learned it for fun, you know? So it's just, you know, that's, that's just a, as far as like getting into guitar. So, you know, next time we'll talk more about like, you know, we'll get guitar nerdy and we'll get gear nerdy. Oh God. I I'm that. totally fine having an episode about gear and just talking about all. Yeah, That could be the third one. Cause yeah, I, I, I could go on all day about gear. I just got a, I just got a, um, an AC 30. I, I love an AC 30. I had an AC 30 for Yeah, this one sounds good. It's not, you know, they have like a fancy hand wired one. Mm -hmm. This is more like just, you know, it's it's just the AC 30 circuit in a, you know, on a on a circuit board, you know. But it's but it's got the sound, does a thing. I mean, I'm like, yeah, there it is. You know, That's there's what I want. it's dead useless for like a palm muting. <laughs> like if I'm trying to palm mute, it's just absolutely terrible for that. But man, if you're just, you know, if, if you're just ringing chords, it's fucking fabulous. It's really fun. I've had a Okay, blast. episode three is going to be gear. Gear, yeah. Episode two, episode we'll two will just be guitar nerd. We'll yeah. talk about more songwriting too. I love it. But thank you so much for being here, man. This Absolutely. Was thank you, Mike. And that does it for this week's episode. It was edited and produced by Chris Fafalius. I'm Mike Myers. Thanks for listening.